invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid their hands on them. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. For those of you who came in a little late, just want to remind you, you may not have gotten the announcement, well, you probably you didn't get the announcements this morning, uh, next Sunday, after our worship service, we will have a potluck dinner. Just bring a carry-in, main dish of some size. We'll provide the drinks. Uh, and so there's no sign-up sheet. Just bring enough for your family and to share. Uh, and then we will follow that with our um, business meeting. Directly after that, our uh, semi-annual business meeting. And so if you'd be prepared for that. Uh, and that will be tomorrow. There will be no evening service next Sunday. But there will be one this week. So come tonight. And introduce a new series that I'm not actually going to get to because we're going to uh, it'll be two weeks before I get into it, but we're going to introduce it this tonight, and we'll get into it on the 27th of July, and so start a new series on Sunday night, and uh, looking forward to that. Well, let's go, Lord, in prayer before we get into our time in God's Word. Lord God, we do thank you for your love for us. Thank you again for your Spirit as our guide. And Lord, we pray that he might truly guide us in the truth this morning. We have our Bibles. We want to uh, learn from your word, his sword, to cut our hearts, to strengthen us, and to challenge us. And Lord, we do pray that this might be a time of uh, your working in lives, minds and hearts, And to your glory. Lord, that your breath might be that which fills your instrument. With sounds that uh, bring praise to your name. Lord, we do pray you might guard this time. From the opinions of men. From... Hard hearts. I guard this time from error. And even from misspoken things. Lord, we trust in you this morning to work as you've promised among your people. And Lord, even beyond our expectations. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, as we have talked about several occasions in our study in Acts, we have been careful to delineate that this is a historical record. And God's Word is always um, careful to describe for us not only what everyone does right, but sometimes the problems that occur and that rise up. And so we have these characters in God's Word who we find all of their blemishes and faults and sins are all described for us alongside of all their repentant acts and their way they try to serve God in their lives. And we can look at those and we see, well, these are real people. They have the same struggles and challenges. They, de- they, they fight the same sins that we encounter today uh, with varying success and yet... Uh, we find God judging sin, rewarding and blessing righteousness, and we uh, 
see that conflict going on between uh, the enemies of Christ and the adherence to Christ. Uh, and then we also find that uh, the church in its early stages as a body, uh, while God was blessing and multiplying them, that did not insulate them from any, having problems. And so we find that uh, God's word is very open to share that issues come up. Problems arise, and we're going to see that uh, really uh, stipulated here in chapter 6. Um, and so we hear people trying to find just the right church, and what they usually mean by that is, I want to have a church where I'm getting fed and where there's never any problems. Um, usually if they're Christians and they're chart chopping, and, and we're a little bit insulated from that here, a little bit, I think, um, but uh, we still see it, and we, we've seen it extensively, I think, in the last uh, few years. Um, when we were at camp, um, just sharing, there was five, four pastors on campus, and just uh, but they don't. We didn't talk a lot about our church lives uh, in terms of their condition. Um, I think all of us knew that we had all gone through some struggles and some oppositions and some heartaches. Um, but the ones that talk about are the campers. And so as campers start asking questions, where is this counselor? Where is this camper? Where are this, where's this family at? And the campers start to share with them, oh, they left our church. They left and they're gone. And, and, uh, uh, and, the disappointment that you see on faces and lives as they go, well, what's going on? And and as campers share, well, our youth group has really diminished. It's gotten small, or our church is struggling, and there's things, that, and, and my family might be leaving soon because there's things not being addressed. And, and what you come away from those conversations and those interactions with is a realization that our churches have problems. This is not an isolated matter. This is, this is everywhere. And what you begin to pick up from is that two or three things. Um, one is that it's just too easy in our society with the prevalence of various bodies of saints around large communities to just pick up and take your ball and go home. Or go to another place and play. Uh, and it's just too easy to do that. And in our society that doesn't want to confront anything, um, that is the preferred way to do it. Instead of confronting things and dealing with these issues, we're just going to leave. And we're going to disappear. We're going to show up usually often in a mega church where we're just a face in the crowd, have no accountability. And therefore there are no problems because... Well, there are problems, but we just sit ourselves in a corner, put our hands over our ears or over our eyes, and go, la, 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 la. I don't know of any problems because I don't know anything. And we become the Sergeant Schultzes of Christianity. If you don't know who that is, I know nothing, I see nothing, I know nothing. Hogan's here. Sorry for the media illustration there. And we become that in the church, and we would rather go to a mega church where we see nothing, know nothing, we have no accountability, we, we, just don't, we, we just don't want any of the problems that come up with knowing that kind of information, and I don't want any people to know about me and my problem and my issues of life and the areas of my life are, that are not in accordance with God's word to be confronted and held accountable. And so um, we run from it. On the other side, um, there are pastors who don't want to deal with it. Um, because when you confront people, the likelihood often in our society is, from point A, is that they are going to run away. And so uh, we're concerned about the decimation of it does on our church population. And so we start to hold back and let things go too far, too long, and, and we... Uh, passively try to lead instead of actively confront sin at the front end of people's lives and and uh, and accept the results that if they reject that confrontation 
that they will likely leave or they will stir up trouble in my church and try to build up a case for themselves and split the church and that's happening. Um, and so we have uh, pastors that have become gun shy, really. They just don't want to pull the trigger of church discipline. They don't want to pull a trigger of, of uh, a rebuke and correction. Uh, even though that, that's half of what Paul describes God's word being useful for in Timothy. And so, uh, a passage like we have before us in chapter 6, verses 1 through 7 is, is critically important. Um, and I'm, I'm going to take it from a perspective of the church. Um, there's going to be a couple other issues that are going to be more focused on the leadership. But I want you to notice that the complaint came from the church. The solution was given to the church to implement and full responsibility for laid on the church, the multitude. And we often think, well, you're the leader, you should be handling this. But as we're going to see, um, the, the disciples said, or the apostles said, you know, in this respect, with this kind of a complaint, this really, um, you take care of it. We'll give you some direction, but you need to take care of it. And I think sometimes our pastors take too much on themselves to resolve issues in the church instead of allowing the church, the authority that rests upon them as possessors of the Holy Spirit, to address these matters um, themselves. Uh, yes, with spiritual direction and leadership, um, but ultimately uh, <laughs> they have responsibility. And we have kind of grown up churches that are kind of infantile spiritually, in terms of recognizing their authority, that we are, um, we need our hand held, and we want to, we want to be spoon-fed everything, and, and we want someone else, we, we want a mommy, we want a daddy to take care of everything, so that I can just comfortably cruise through my spiritual life um, without having to do hard things. Well, we want mature churches to grow up and address the issues of our age and uh, the issues that are cropping up in our lives and in our families. And uh, I must acknowledge before you that I think our church is, is seeking and striving to do that. We haven't done it uh, perfectly by any stretch of the imagination, but uh, I appreciate and acknowledge that we have taken measures um, to try to be a righteous people before God and to, uh, to uh, address sin when it's sin. Sometimes that has driven people away. Sometimes it has brought them to repentance and restoration. But in these days of the great falling away that has occurred over the last 50 years, um, we see... Stronger and stronger evidence that people are unwilling to hear. But maybe the problem is here. The problem is there. And sometimes the problem isn't anyone's fault. It just happens. We come to chapter 6 now and we have a problem. Uh, the problem wasn't that the disciples were multiplying. <laughs> we would never identify that as a problem, would we? Um, Oh, we got a problem, Pastor. We're just getting too many people in our church. Um, by the way, uh, if you talk to some of the Chinese pastors, um, and I've seen interviews and read their accounts, um, you know what they say? This is a problem we're having. We have too many people coming to Christ too fast. And it's creating problems. The problem is there is not enough time, people, energy to train them and disciple them. And so they are theologically just all over the place. And that's part of why we support gospel literature services, trying to get not just Bibles, but other materials in there to help them train their people. Um, and so we're trying to get Bible dictionaries, Bible handbooks, Sunday school material, uh, just reading material uh, and resources in addition to uh, help them uh, in their study of God's Word and their development of their leadership. Well, the church was multiplying, and as it was multiplying... Something was happening. It was, remember, it was predominantly a Jewish kind of 
faith. They are still meeting in, in Solomon's colonnade in the temple. Um, they were Jewish through and through. Um, but the Jews themselves, during this period of time, from Pentecost through, or, I'm sorry, from uh, Passover through Pentecost, and now as many had stayed around and were being trained in God's word, uh, there were also Hellenists. And Hellenists were Greek-born individuals, so they were Gentiles who had become Jews, who had converted to Judaism, so they were in the temple. And they were uh, following the law. They were following Jewish custom. They were being trained in that. They, they, uh, but, their, but their physical lineage was Hellenistic or Greek. And so they too were in there and hearing God's word and responding by faith, trusting in Christ as their Savior. Um, but they operated in a different section of the city. Uh, in fact, we're going to find out as we get farther along here, Stephen is one of their, the point men to the Hellenists, and they actually had their own synagogues. And so a synagogue, different than the temple, is where you'd gather with a rabbi and hear teachings. And uh, they required 12 Jewish men to form a synagogue. And uh, in the synagogues, they were largely broken up by interests. or uh, And we would consider that a kind of a segregation and so you might have a synagogue over here of, of, of Jewish men who have this rabbi they're following or this interest or they might have this background. So you might have a group over here that are more pharisaical and a group over here is more Sadducees. They would not ever join each other's synagogues. Well, so also there was a Hellenistic group. And so they kind of function in this community of Hellenists um, and they had their own synagogues. They had their own engagements that they participate in and uh, but they all came to the temple because that was the unifying place well they were coming to christ as well but they had a different group of people that they knew and and a, a different kind of society that they functioned in than the jewish believers that were that were born jewish believers israelites and as they came to christ and all this income is being brought to the apostles the apostles could easily identify the widows of the Jewish community. They were, e they were well-known, well-identified. But it was not so easy to be able to identify the Hellenistic widows because these, these communities were separated to some degree. So a complaint comes forward and says, listen, you're distributing the giving. The giving's all going to one pot but it's being distributed unevenly and the attention has been given to the Jewish widows and you're neglecting the Hellenistic widows. These gals who have also come to Christ, who had converted to Judaism and now come to Christ, accepting him as their Messiah. Um, and uh, you need to address this. Um, and the, the apostles, and we know all, where all of them are around, right? They came from Galilee. They were the Jewish group. And... The apostles do not say, oh, quit complaining and whining. You don't find any statement by the apostles saying, oh, come on. Or No, no they accept the complaint. And the, and the evidence is that it was real. It was valid. This really was going on. That be, and it would seem natural. These guys know the Jewish widows because they're in their community. But the Hellenistic widows and, uh, weren't, weren't very well known to the disciples. The disciples come to realize that we aren't really, this isn't really what we were called to do. And so they gather again in verse 2, and it says the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. Isn't that incredible? And so, remember, we're up to thousands of men. Thousands of men. They summon them all together, and they have this statement to make to thousands of men. Verse 2b, it says, It is not desirable that we should leave the Word of God to serve tables. And they start right off and say, they don't say, you know, we've had this complaint. They just say, the complaint is here, it's real. Um, but, and we could pour all of our attention into making sure this is done in an equitable way and the distribution of all this uh, giving that you've done and praise God for that. Uh, that you have that you have uh, 
love one another and love God to this extent that we have these funds available, they simply come forward and says and say, it's not best for you for us to do this job. It is not desire, it is not to your benefit. It is not best for the church that we um, engage ourselves with all of our energies, because it would take, I mean, thousands of men were involved in, at this point. And when you think thousands of men, you got to think thousands of families, and not families with 2.6 people in them. Okay, that's an American family. Jewish family at this point, you're talking kids. It's not desirable. It's not best for uh, for you that we stop studying God's word to come over here and make sure and take the pains to make sure that the distribution is equitable across all the believers and the widows particularly. It's just not best. So here's what we're going to do, brethren, verse 3. And uh, this is going to sound like they just kind of dump it off of themselves under their shoulders. Brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation. We're going to talk about the description of them, uh, full of the Holy Spirit, wisdom. But uh, we're going to talk about those in a little bit. But then in verse 3, whom we may appoint over this business. And they recognized that there was a need. And they recognized the necessity that it be cared for. But they did not recognize themselves as the ones appropriate for that responsibility. That it demanded so much of them that the church would ultimately be injured because you would have men conducting business uh, on earthly terms that rather than being conducting God's business in the Word. And I'm not trying to say that's not God's business. That is, caring for widows and orphans, God looks upon. But they recognize this is our calling. This is our assignment. That we were called by God to be followers of Jesus Christ, to be witnesses of His life, His teaching, His death, burial, and resurrection. We are here to lead the church and and there's going to be a number added to them down the road. But, it's, but when it comes to these matters, um, we're not going to diminish their necessity because they're real. But they're just not our job. And we begin to have an understanding of this, uh, the necessity of, That our leadership be men of God's word and men of prayer. Back when I was a young pastor, a group came out having interviewed church members across our country. Because we all know that the majority are always right, right? So you interview church members, and that's how you determine how to conduct yourself, and how. And they just turned. They, they interviewed church members across the country, and they decided that uh, church members were not looking for shepherds. They were looking for ranchers. They didn't want to be sheep led. They want to be cattle driven. Now, that's got to sink in a little bit. Okay, we want ranchers. To big, build ranch, big ranches, not just to be led from pasture to pasture by a guy who uh, just walks and leads. Uh, no, we want ranchers who are going to drive the church. And most pastors picked up that idea and said, yeah, I'm going to be a rancher, and I'm going to, I'm going to, and they engage themselves in building programs uh, in offering numbers in uh, the church growth movement, and it was all uh, very rancher-oriented. We're going to get behind the people and drive them to where we want them to go. God's 
word describes the leadership of the church as shepherds, under shepherds. That is, we have the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ, and under shepherds. And, and the shepherd boy role is one of uh, very gentle. Uh, you ever try to drive sheep with a horse? They're everywhere. They just go in every direction. And that's exactly what is happening in our churches. As pastors take up this role to drive sheep, you have them scattering all over the place because they, it, it's a, it's a set apart relationship. That someone, I'm out here and we're going to get this offering. And if we don't make the offering, we're going to take it a second time. We're going to get these population, uh, goals met. We're going to see these programs implemented and we're going to press it on you. And that is not what the disciples do here. They say, we need this as our assignment. We need to be in the Word of God. We need to be in prayer. We need to lead you as under-shepherds of Jesus Christ. Which means that we need to walk with Christ as He walked with us, gentle. With our voice, so that the sheep hear the voice, and they know it, and they follow it. And what happens? He leads them into green pastures. And the disciples recognize that if we are going to provide that kind of leadership, that gentle um, guidance that demands something of us, that demands time in God's word, that we need to be theologians, we need to be in prayer. And and verse 4 says, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. That this is not just a half my work. And by the way, I've talked to some pastors, and and they, and we've done. I've participated in some that uh, they try to set up the pastor's time schedule, how much time he spends on this, 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 this. And the average American pastor is uh, spending a preponderance of his time on administrative duties. What does that sound like to you? Does it sound kind of like serving tables? Administrative duties. I kind of scratched my head. I'm not sure exactly what administrative duties are. Uh, I don't think it includes mopping the church. I do. I don't think I would call that administrative duty when I come over and mop the church up chairs. Um, so I'm trying to figure out what the administrative duties are that they're spending so much time on. Time in prayer, time in the Word, didn't even rank second or third. We've got a problem. When our time and our energies are not given to these elements, and I was a little frustrated with uh, one of the, I've been frustrated with pastors frequently because um, when I get together with pastors, I have one interest. I have one desire. My wife knows what it is, and whenever she sees it starting to happen, she just protects that environment. I can see her doing that in the background, protecting that time. So when I sit down with Pastor Lossing, and, and uh, we start engaging. And, I mean, we got our Bibles out. He's got his Hebrew text out because, um, you know, he teaches Hebrew, <laughs> And you think I'm going to let that resource just be wasted on, no, 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 you're going to sit down. I sit down, <laughs> get your Hebrew, I need your help, let's talk. And we're engaging each other. And, and now and then he sends me stuff, and, and you have to recognize that when he sends me stuff in the Internet, um, it's his material that he's teaching to some of his students and, and that he hasn't even yet taught to his students because he hasn't developed it to the point for them, but he's willing to share with me and I have to plow through Greek and Hebrew and, and Spanish. Because it's all in Spanish, for crying out loud. And every now and then he'll put a few English words in there for me. Um, so I got my Spanish dictionary, my Hebrew dictionary, my Greek dictionary. And but oh, the preciousness of this time to just sharpen and to engage in God's word. And I, but I got to tell you, that's rare. A lot of men I try to engage in quickly disengage themselves. 
It happened this week where I'm trying to challenge somebody and I'm just trying to engage him with a simple question and he eluded every, he didn't want to answer it. I'm like, it's in our Bibles. If you're not ready to teach this, if you're not ready to take a stand on it with another pastor or at least engage me with it, what are you doing standing up in front of people and opening God's word when you don't care what it says and won't engage somebody? And this happens too often. I've had pastor point blank tell me, I'm just I'm not a theologian. I can't engage you on that. <laughs> Oh, that he would not leave the word of God to serve tables. But that's exactly what many of our pastors are doing because the people want it. They want cattlemen, not shepherds. They want men that will take the responsibilities, get on that high horse and drive the herd. Instead of a shepherd that will gently lead by having you hear his voice every day and carrying lambs around and going from pasture to pasture by walking you and grabbing the front one and taking one by the hand or two by the neck and walking and knowing the others will follow. The disciples said this isn't, we're not, we're not, businessmen. We are not administrators. In seminary, they gave the list of gifts for pastors. The best gifts for pastors to have. And on the top of the list was the gift of administration. <laughs> I hate to tell you this, but that's better suited for deacons. I'm not an administrator. I'm a shepherd. And not even a chief one. I'm a shepherd boy. My job is to communicate to you what the chief shepherd has, to go where he says to go. Here's the green pastures. I'm supposed to walk among you, uh, pull you along, uh, grab one or two of you by the nap of your neck, and uh, take you with me to, so you're familiar with the voice, so there's interaction. And a shepherd boy lives with the sheep. He lives with them. They know his voice. They come. They hear his song. They, they see his life. They know him and they follow. Cows, you drive them with fear. That's what that whip is for. You drive them with fear. That's what that big horse is for. That's how that hip, hip. Move, doggies. That's what that's for. You're driving them with fear. You do that, a bunch of sheep, they'll go, We're not going to drive you with fear. These men weren't administrators. They're not businessmen. They're there to lead you in this quietness of the Word of God and prayer. Now, does that mean that they didn't have other occupations? No, they did. Paul, of course, made tents. He worked with his hands and, and uh, engaged in employment so that the churches weren't be burdened with him, with his care. And uh, we find others that were participating in, in, in uh, commerce. But when it came to the functioning of the church, uh, their energies were poured into prayer and the time of the word and it's evident in their lives. And so it is thrown back to the church and said, brethren, you take care of this by selecting from among yourselves seven men. And this is a spiritual work and so they need to have some spiritual qualifications. They have to have a reputation in the community and among you as honest individuals. They have to be full of the Holy Spirit because even serving tables is a spiritual task in the church and they need to have wisdom. They need to have a knowledge base that's been applied in their life and, and is evident to everyone around that these are men of wisdom because um, what, you're, what we're asking them to do is difficult. It's a different kind of difficulty than what we're asking of the apostles and the 
and the shepherds, but it still has difficulty and requires the Spirit's direction and wisdom, and this is what is demanded of them. But you select them. The, the, the apostles don't go through the crowd and say, oh, yeah, you, 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 and you. No. You select them. You bring them forward. You identify them. You choose from among yourselves seven men. This is seven men to serve thousands of families. <laughs> I've been to some churches of a couple hundred that had like 14 deacons. I was like, your church is only 200 people. You need 14 deacons to take care of 200 people? You must have a lot of widows. Seven men to take care of thousands of families. Because their focus wasn't on going around and making sure each little family um, was all set up. Their focus was on widows and orphans and the care of those with genuine need. Not this imaginary need that so many American families have. I want you to come. And we, because of our immaturity spiritually, we, we want someone to come and hold our hand and, and to uh, uh, be our parents so we can be an irresponsible child. No, that's not what was involved here. Their care was for those with real needs. They had the resources of the church they had to have responsibility over. They had to be trustworthy. They had to have the Spirit fill them. And we find out also from Stephen that there was a requirement of faith. They had to trust God. Because sometimes the need might be greater than the supply in man's view. But when you have faith in God, the need is never greater than the supply, is it? Because the one supplying it isn't your offering box. The one supplying it is your God. His resources never run out. And so they select seven men. Interesting that of the seven men, uh, the overwhelming majority of them all have Greek names. <laughs> I think there was something to that. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. So if the Hellenists, we have a problem with the Hellenists, let's get some. Greek guys, and Stephen is one of them, right off the bat. I mean, that's why he's engaging in the next chapter. Um, he's going to, or before this chapter's over, he's engaging the synagogues that are filled mostly with Greek men. But we find among these names some Greek guys. We have a proselyte. Um, there he is at the end. He says he's a proselyte from Antioch, which means he was not born uh, Jew either. Some of these other Greek names may have been second generation or third generation Hellenist Jews. In other words, they con their parents converted to Judaism and they were born in it. Um, but one of them specifically said he was a proselyte. So he was a first generation Jew who became a Christian and he's on the list. So you start off with Stephen, that we know his engagement with the synagogue of the freedmen. And we go right down to uh, our last, oh, what's his name? I'm supposed to know it. Nicholas, right? Yeah, Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And so you have a first generation man at the end of the list here, and we have these seven men that the church brought to the leadership, uh, to the apostles. It says, okay, here's the seven guys. We, we chose these men. We chose them. Having, it's verse 5, the saying pleased the whole multitude, so they all said, and isn't that great? They were pleased. Oh, you want us to do it? We have that kind of authority? Okay. We'll choose seven guys from among our number. That sounds like a great plan. We'll do that. We'll take care of it. We will accept the responsibility to resolve the complaint that is at hand. I'm not just going to go tell the apostles and say, fix it. We will recognize that I have to be part of the solution. And they were pleased to do it. It was their pleasure to participate in this process. And so they went out, and we are not told the process of how they did this, but somehow 
they, as thousands of men, chose seven men to take care of the material resources available to the church. In verse 6 it says, they set them before the apostles. So they brought them forward. We don't find the apostles saying, I don't think that guy is one. You don't find any of that. It says they brought them forward. They set them before the apostles. And the apostles, it says the, the, the next they, by the way, is referring to the apostles. The, and they had prayed and laid their hands on them. And so they said, you've brought them forward. You have chosen them. Here's these seven men. And we are going to uh, set them apart. We are going to sanctify them by praying, laying our hands on them, and essentially we're going to transfer our authority to them, and they're going to have authority over these matters in the church from henceforward. And by the way, uh, we know at least one of these guys was still called one of the seven years later when he crosses paths with Paul. 25, 30 years later, he's still called one of the seven. He's in a whole other town. Think about that. Whether he was traveling with some responsibilities for the resources of the church, one of the seven, years later, these guys were permanently given this role. It was laid on their shoulders, and they would be called that for the rest of their lives, just like the apostles were called for the rest of their lives to serve God in the word and prayer, these men were set apart. They were made holy to the Lord for this job. That's kind of strange to us. Because we have always been told, well, we vote for them for a term of office. Well, we don't in our church. We vote for them until they either disqualify themselves or resign um, for whatever reasons. And so we vote you... um, for life, basically, and as long as you're a member of the church and good standing, we expect you to fulfill this office, this role. The idea that somehow um, this is an elected position that because and, and we have and we have some churches with term limits. Oh, I just do you really think that there are that many men that we can have term limits? Term limits is <laughs> the purpose of term limits is to keep worthless men from holding a position too long. That's its purpose. If we get a bad one, we're at least not stuck with him forever. Read through your Bible from cover to cover and see how many people that God says, I'm going to use you for this term, and then you're free to go. God's calling Moses was, you're it till you're dead. Joshua, till you're gone. Gabriel, uh, Gabriel, Gideon, Samuel, David, prophets. If you're, here's your term limit. If you stop doing what I told you to do, I'm taking your life. If you do it wrong, you're dead. Remember the prophet? He goes and does his job, and then God says, you go straight home and don't you stop anywhere in that hole. I don't even want you to stop and have any food in that land. And another false prophet comes up to him and says, oh, no, God told me you're supposed to come to my house and eat. And a bear killed him because he listened to a false prophet instead of God. There's a term limit for you. So these guys are going to take on this responsibility um, for good, from what we can tell. Philip, years, like I said, 20-some years later, he's still one of the seven. And they're going to fulfill this responsibility. And so they laid their hands on them, which is, you have this authority now, you have this responsibility now, and this you are set apart to this task and that laying on of the hands is is not lightly done and is not done in a temporary fashion. It is always we are setting you aside for this role, for the balance of your days. Heed yourself. That you sustain the qualifications. And the same in the pastorate. I have a responsibility to maintain myself 
qualified. Because the calling of God, I don't find it coming and going in the church age on men of God. And I get frustrated with guys who are in the pastor, out of the pastor, in the pastor, out of the pastor, because they can't decide. And they're in the pastor, then they're selling insurance, they're in the pastor, then they're going with the FBI, then they're in the pastor, and they're driving truck. And it's like, what are you? And that is not the design of God. Now, can you do both simultaneously? Well, obviously we have guys doing that who are dual occupation, but they never leave off the responsibility of this laying on of hands. Do you remember Paul speaking to Timothy? Hey, don't forget that we laid hands on you. And don't you neglect your ministry ever. Remember that by the laying on of hands you receive this authority of ministry. And it doesn't go away. The responsibility doesn't go away. The accountability doesn't go away. The, the, the qualification requirements don't diminish. So these men took it on. And a problem in the church was resolved by the church. Led by godly people who said, we don't have to hold your hand and solve every little problem ourselves. Be adults. Be mature. You have the Holy Spirit residing in you. You're being taught the Word of God. You know, you can tell the difference, can't you? Do you not have the discernment to be able to find seven men that can fit this description, that we can put in charge of these things? Yes, we have other descriptions there in Timothy and Titus to help us to further elaborate on this. But the church resolved the issue. You didn't see a divided church that from then on you have the Hebrew church over there and the Hellenist church over there. The first thing they do is they brought forward their complaint to the leadership. The leadership said, here's the way we need to resolve this, but you need to take the, take the responsibility and the resolution process. It's not just laying on us. We're going to lay it on you where it belongs. You bring forth seven men. We will set them apart and endow them with authority to address these matters from then on. And the church solved the problem. The apostles didn't solve this. The church resolved it. Yes, they had leadership, giving them wisdom and direction. But the church says, we'll take up our part. And we'll use the discernment of the Spirit within us to identify seven men full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And we'll assign to them this job. And we'll submit to their authority as granted by the shepherds who themselves operate under the authority of the chief shepherd. A church solving a problem. Imagine. Well, let's just imagine it. When churches act like grown-ups and solve problems in a grown-up way with the working of the Holy Spirit in a powerful fashion, when our shepherds shepherd (laughs) and do what they're supposed to do, and the church does what it's supposed to do, and that is to follow. Follow God. Following His leadership as they follow the chief shepherd. I would be afraid of following a shepherd that wasn't himself following the chief shepherd. We have churches being led by pastors who aren't praying and aren't in God's word sufficient. But they're great administrators. And we wonder why we have problems. But we also have an immature church He doesn't want to do the hard work of discernment and of examination and of the selection process to set forward and and complete the activity to resolve her own problems. 
you fix this for me, pastor, or you're a bad pastor. This is the nature of a church today. But if we would mature ourselves in God and set our course that we will resolve issues in our church in this manner, especially physical things that are so little of importance compared to the spiritual matters that we have been assigned, the mission that we talked about last week, then truly, when we resolve issues, verse 7 would become true. The Word of God spread. You know, one of the complaints I hear about churches is they're full of problems. I would love to hear someone say, your church is full of solutions. The reason it doesn't happen isn't because the pastors are bad. Sometimes that is the failure. But from what I can tell, much of the failure comes because the churches don't want to have to do that work. They want it to be done for them. So they can just come into church, sit down, sing a song, hear three points in a poem, and go home and fulfill their religious duty for the week. These people had to do some work. They had to identify out of thousands of men, seven. They had to then agree among thousands of Jews on those seven. That may be a miracle. If you've ever met a Jewish community, they don't agree on much together. And they set them before, and these men were set apart, willing to serve in this capacity and commit their lives to that, and even to the point of committing themselves in incredible service that we're going to be studying in the next few weeks. It says the word of God spread. The number of the disciples multiplied greatly. We're still just in Jerusalem. That's a problem. Um, But we'll get to that. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. That's phenomenal. (laughs) Not just a handful of priests. A great many of the priests. Because they're like, these men are resolving things that we can't resolve among ourselves. They're confronted with a true complaint. They don't ignore it. They don't try to sweep it under the table. They don't try to placate these people. They have a balanced approach. And the body of saints who are only a few weeks old, spiritually, are mature enough to accept the responsibility of bringing forth the solution and they willingly surrender themselves to the authority given to that this body of seven by the twelve. And they're rejoicing in the Lord. They're growing. And the priests themselves are attracted to that. Now, priests come from a responsibility-laden group. They understand responsibility. They understand what happens here. That what... That, that, that was accomplished by this church and by the leadership that you didn't break apart into sects. So I need to listen to your message a little better. And oh, that we would have that in our testimony. And it's not dependent upon the leadership, it's dependent upon the church to accept counsel to accept responsibility, to bring true resolution to problems, and to accept the resolution even if it's not what we wanted. All four of those have to be present for our testimony to be intact to the community. Because if you don't like the solution that the church comes to, What's the American way? I'm out of here. Bye. I didn't get my way. Not submission. That this is where God has led us and I'm going to accept that authority and submit to it. Because we've been raised as rebels. If I don't get my way, I'm on the highway.
We have some pastors that function that way too. They want to control every little facet of their ministries. Not these guys. We'll trust these seven to take care of this huge aspect. But we have a bigger responsibility, a different responsibility. That is to be shepherds. And that means time in the Word. And when the body does what the body has to do and the leadership has does what they're supposed to be doing, what would you expect but for the Word of God to spread? And multiplying. And thousands turn into tens of thousands. And those who are among the priests become obedient to the faith. Those who once opposed us are now among us, as one of us. Remember, the high priest was a Sadducee. Remember that? He didn't even believe in the resurrection. Now it says a great many of the priests not only believed in the resurrection, believed in the resurrected Jesus Christ, but they were obedient to that Christ and trusted in him. This is the wonder when we, that the world, that influences and affects the world when churches resolve it and when the believers are mature enough to respond to that resolution with submission to it. We will rejoice in that it was resolved. We seldom see it because we seldom exercise this kind of mature response we seldom want to accept responsibility that we have a role in its resolution. And we seldom are we willing to accept a resolution if it doesn't go exactly our way. The Bible says that we are to submit one to another. And here, the church submits to the direction given to them by its leadership. These seven, identified by the body who chose them out, agreed to serve in this capacity, and the church accepted their ministry. The word of God spreads. This is what resolution looks like. This is what problem solving is. And it ha- takes grown-ups. Physically, ma- maturity-wise, but also spiritually. And I find that these new Christians in this young church are more mature spiritually than most of our churches have been around for centuries. We need to learn from them. Not that we're never going to have problems because this church, like every church, will have them. But what do you do about it? Just complain until you're bitter and leave? Or do you come and bring it forward and say, let's fix this. And I'll be part of the solution. And I'll accept the solution when it is established. That the Word of God may grow. Christ might increase and I might decrease. Let's pray. Lord God, we do thank you for the testimony of a church with problem. And Lord, we confess freely before you we don't handle our problems very well. We function as selfish individuals who put our families before the family of God put our own self-interests and self-agendas before the agenda of Christ. We put our own comforts of wanting to not have to confront anyone and not wanting to have to fight or to struggle ahead of the welfare of the body of Christ. 
Forgive us of this, Lord. They're wrapped up in our pride, our arrogance, our love of ourself, our boasting. Lord, give us a different spirit. We thank you for the leadership that you have raised up. We pray for them. That each might fulfill the role you have called them to. That we might rejoice in your work through them in our midst. And Lord, our prayer is that because of the stand this church takes and the desire to resolve issues rather than to hide them or divide over them might have a testimony with great power to those around us. And as many priests of your temple came to Christ, Lord, we pray that those who are religious and yet not obedient to the faith you demand around us might be attracted and come to know you as Savior and Lord. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.